1 Corinthians 15, 58. It's our motto text for the year. And um, in the text, Paul refers to the work of the Lord. What he's talking about, according to the great Presbyterian Charles Hodge, is the work which the Lord has given us to do as parents and children, husbands and wives, ministers and Christians. He's talking about the work <clears throat> that God has given us to do. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, we believe that God, having established this church, sets before us another year of work, work to which we must give ourselves. Paul is also talking about really all areas of life, not just Providence Baptist Church and the work that God has for us here. He's talking about all areas of life, because in all areas of our lives as Christians, we're trying to serve the Lord. Uh, we're trying to uh, work for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're trying to, uh, to win souls. We're trying to be a witness. We're trying to be light in this dark world. We're trying to be a blessing to other Christians. We're trying to be those who edify one another. That's in all areas of our lives, and, and that's the work that God has given to us. And uh, this is the kind of thing, then, that you're seeking to do in the year that lies before us. You're seeking to, as one writer says, to bring all holy and loving influences of all sorts to bear on all sorts of men, if by any means sinners might be won to accept grace and saints might be animated on their way to glory. You're trying to live in such a way that sinners will be one to the Lord Jesus, and as he puts it here so quaintly, we want to live in such a way that other Christians will be animated. You know, after their conversation with us and their fellowship with us, they don't walk away with their arms hanging down because we've taken the wind out of their sails, but they walk away animated, energized, invigorated and encouraged to go on their way from strength to strength as they also seek to serve the Lord. Well, we're trying to live like that. We're going to try and live like that in the year that stretches out before us. And Paul wants to, in this text, encourage us so to live. He wants to exhort and encourage us as we seek to be Christian workers in this world. Why does he try to encourage us? Why does he think, well, I need to encourage these people, these Corinthians and these folk at Providence. Why do I need to encourage them? Let me give you at least three reasons why we need exhortation and encouragement. One, because the work of the Lord can be a thankless task. Uh, from a horizontal perspective, you can work, and you can work in all kinds of ways, and it seems, at least to you, that nobody really appreciates it. Nobody's going to say thank you today to you. You will have done some work here, and not a single solitary person is going to say thank you. Maybe it's whoever's in the nursery. It's going to be sometimes a thankless task. Also, because serving uh, the Lord can be a joyless task. 
Sometimes the work is so hard, there's little joy in it. Paul uses a word here in verse 58. It's translated labor. He says, knowing that your labor is not in vain. That's not just ordinary work. That's work that is labor. That's work that is tough. That's work that makes you weary. That's work that doesn't energize you. It drains you and sometimes renders you in such a state that ah, you're just weary to your bones. So sometimes serving the Lord can be a thankless task. Sometimes it's a joyless task. And, and sometimes it's a fruitless task. For, again, from a temporal perspective, you see little by the way of results. You know, in all kinds of other areas of work, and service that you render in the world, and work that you put your hands to in this life, you see some results. Whether it's just, uh, you know, doing the dishes. And at the end of that, you see clean dishes. That doesn't last very long. But uh, at least for a moment, you see results. And very often the fact is when it comes to spiritual work, you see no results at all. And that can be discouraging. Like, what kinds of results have we seen from distributing invitations? I'll tell you. None. We've seen none. What about um, working in the nursery? When you come out of the nursery, like, what results do you see? Aside from, look, I survived. No one threw up on me. And here I am, still clothed and in my right mind. So, fair enough, those are not unwelcome results. But really, at the end of the day, what kinds of results do you really see from that labor? Probably nothing really at all. What about teaching the gospel to your children? Maybe your children are not saved. And you've been faithful, and you've been praying, and you've shed tears, but you've not seen any results. Because they're not saved at this point. What about maintaining integrity at work? Because you've, you've made it a, a point to act according to principle. And you've been faithful. And you've stood your ground. And you've said no to certain things. And you've not laughed at other things. And you've sought to be consistent. And so you've maintained your integrity at work. And what's been the result? Well, it's been getting harder, it seems. So, yeah, serving the Lord can be a thankless task and a joyless task and, and in many ways a fruitless task. And the result is that Spurgeon says, discouragement creeps over my heart and makes me go with heaviness to my work. He says, it's dreadfully weakening. Well, you see, that's why Paul says... Look, I want to encourage you. Now, you be steadfast, and you be immovable, and you always be abounding in the work of the Lord, because, look, your work in the Lord is not in vain. He's trying to encourage them. And uh, that's what we want to think about this morning. For those and other reasons, Paul wants to encourage us, and for these and other reasons, we want to seek encouragement ourselves as we go about laboring for Christ in the year that lies ahead. We're going to see two things. We're going to see an, an earnest call, 
and we're going to see an encouraging word. So first of all, an earnest call. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Right away we see that Paul is in earnest about encouraging them in their service of the Lord, but he's very gracious about it. You notice that he says that they're brothers. They're brothers. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, of course. So the work of the Lord, then, is a family business. You're involved in the family work. You're involved in the family business, and you work shoulder to shoulder with brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. The one whose work this is, is your father. The elder brother is also obviously involved in the work. It's his work. It's his kingdom. It's his church. And you and I are brothers and sisters in Christ, and we're involved in the family business. Now, you need to realize, then, that other Christians are not the enemy. Other Christians are not the enemy in this work. We are laboring together with brothers and sisters in Christ. Having said that, sometimes when you listen to other Christians and what they say, and sometimes when you watch other Christians and what they do, you might be forgiven for thinking that, well, maybe they are the enemy. But the simple fact is that they're not. We're all in the same kingdom. We're all in the same service. We all are the same master, and brothers and sisters at times might be at each other's throats, but the fact of the matter is there's nothing like family, and it's true of the Christian family. And so we must remember who the family is and who the brothers and sisters are, and Paul says that they are brothers in Christ working in the family business. He also says they're beloved. They're beloved. Paul loves these people. And again, that's contrary to the way Christians treat one another sometimes in this world. And sometimes uh, Christians are unappreciative of those who serve Christ. Sometimes they're overly critical of those who are serving Christ. Sometimes they're jealous. You know, sometimes Christians see how other churches are doing, and rather than be happy for the glory of God, they're jealous for the glory of their own name. So, uh, we need to be reminded that these other Christians and all of us who serve the Lord Jesus together, they're beloved. And Paul works with these Corinthian believers and he loves them. And that's remarkable because these Corinthians had issues. They had problems and they had sins and they had a party spirit and they were lining up behind this person, others lined up behind that person. They were backbiting and they were arguing and they were sitting. They had all kinds of issues. And we see this kind of thing today. The Christian church is just full of all kinds of troubled people. And we're talking about the Christians now. All kinds of troubles and all kinds of sins and all kinds of weakness. But Paul looks at the Corinthians and he says, My beloved brethren. Well, we don't have to look very far to see all kinds of troubled Christians. But we can call them beloved. Despite their issues, 
We love them, and despite our issues, they love us. So we work together. And so this is a very gracious way in which Paul sets about bringing this earnest call to them. He says, oh, beloved brethren, here's my exhortation. Well, then what is that exhortation? What does he call them to? It's an earnest call, but what is he calling them to? Well, first of all, he's calling them to be steadfast workers. Steadfast workers. The word steadfast means to be seated. So you come in here, you're, you sit down, and now you're ready. You've buckled on, you're ready for a long sermon, and you've buckled on, you're steadfast now. You're seated, you're prepared, and you're going you're gonna to see it through. And that's what this word means. It means to be settled, to be firm, to be stable. It's something solid and unshakable. I'll uh, betray my age and remind you about an advert for a truck, Chevy, I think, and they always would say, this is like a rock. Some very manly fellow will stand there and point to the truck and, and with a, the square jaw of his and a, probably a southern accent will say, oh, like a rock. And it's fabulous because, well, uh, that's what Christians are like. That's what you're like. You see, you're... You're like a rock. You're steadfast. You're like the rock of Gibraltar. You're the personification in the Christian world of the rock of Gibraltar. And then you're immovable. What does immovable mean? Well, immovable means basically the same thing, except it's kind of ratcheted up a little bit. It's like steadfast on steroids. And so you're even in a more intense way, you're just immovable. You're you're motionless and immobile. You're just there. And you cannot be moved. And you see, if you're steadfast, you will be immovable. That's the idea here. And so Paul is saying, uh, we want Christians who are steadfast and immovable. They're just like spiritual rocks. That's what we want you to be. Steadfast and immovable theologically. You're not just floating everywhere. You're not just drifting this way and that based on some wind of heretical doctrine, pushing you here, pushing you there. No, no. You're steadfast and immovable. You're not tossed with every wind of doctrine, Paul says in Ephesians 4 and verse 14. Doctrinally, especially in terms of the resurrection. You remember in this chapter, Paul is saying that people are attacking the resurrection, they're denying the resurrection, and he says, No, no, you keep steadfast. Now, you know this is the truth. Stand on the truth, stand firm doctrinally. And not just on the doctrine of the resurrection, but on truth in general. The faith once delivered to the saints. We have in the Scriptures a body of doctrine. Stand firm on that. Charles Hodge writes, Every point of doctrine, do not consider every point of doctrine an open question. Matters of faith, doctrines for which you have clear revelation of God, are not to be considered, are to be considered settled. No longer matters of dispute. You know, we're not trying to figure things out all the time. We're not trying to think, well, not, you know, is Jesus God? Let's think that through. No, no, we, we know that. That's settled. 
That's just true. And there are all kinds of truths like that. Read the 6 and 89. There's all kinds of just settled doctrines in there. That's marvelous. It's wonderful. And so you need to be steadfast and immovable when it comes to doctrine. Are you like that? Is that you? You're just, you're just like the rock of Gibraltar when it comes to truth, when it comes to doctrine. I know people like that. I know people who, when I met them 50 years ago, I can go up to them today and say, what do you believe about this? Now, I know what you believed back then. What do you believe about it now? And they tell me exactly the same thing they told me back then. I know people like that. Some of them are here in this very room. And I know exactly what they think. Why is that? Well, because they're steadfast and immovable doctrinally. And they're going to die like that, you know. That's fantastic. It's wonderful. It's glorious. And then practically, you want to be steadfast and immovable theologically and steadfast and immovable practically. That is, you're always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's just what they're like, these people. Down through the years, you know, you see Christians, and they're like shooting stars. In, in the summer, we were sitting outside in the, what, looking at the night sky, and we saw shooting stars, and they're just, you know, they're spectacular. They just cross the sky like that, and you look at Whoa! And then they're gone. And there are some Christians like that. They're like shooting stars. And it's like, whoa, they come in like a house on fire. And it's like, wow. And then they're gone. And I'm not talking about, oh, they've left our church. No, no, it's, it's, oh, it's much, much worse than that. They're gone from the church. They've turned away from Christ. Oh, but uh, not these Christians, not the ones Paul is writing to. He says, oh, I want you to be steadfast and immovable. You're just constant and continuous in your commitment to the cause of Christ and to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know people like that. Yeah, they're just steadfast and immovable. And for as long as I can remember, they've been serving Christ. And year after 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 year, I've been watching them and they've been serving Christ. And I know if I get up tomorrow and I see them, they'll be serving Christ. They're steadfast and immovable. I know people like that, and I've watched them, and I've seen them decade after decade, and some of them are in this room, and, and you know them. So Paul's saying that's the kind of thing that should characterize you, so that at the end of your life, you're going to be like me, Paul says. At the end of your life, you're going to be able to say, look, thank God, by grace, I've run the race. I have finished my course. It's not been easy. It's been rugged at times, but I've run the race. Steadfast, immovable, theologically and practically. So that's what he's saying. That's, 
this earnest call, you see, he's urging them to be steadfast workers. And then he's urging them also to be enthusiastic workers. Enthusiastic workers, not grudging, not I've got your arm in this hole and I'm forcing you to, and you don't have a choice about it, and you do... No, no, not like that. He says, you're abounding in the work of the Lord. That's a fabulous word, abounding, always abounding in the work of the Lord. The word abound means to be over and above. Means to have an abundance. It means to be lavish. You know, the kind of meal that you like when you visit someone and they're just, they're just lavish in their preparations. You say, oh, I made a fine choice to come here today. They're lavish. They're, they're just extravagant in all of their preparations. You say, oh, it's going to be a good meal. Christian is like that in terms of work. He's like that in terms of service. They are over the top. Some people are over the top, sometimes in ways that probably annoy you. Paul says Christians are like that when it comes to service, when it comes to working for the Lord. They're just over the top. They cannot do enough for Him. You know, people like that who, well, they're so kind that that's how they treat you. They can't do enough for you. Well, Paul says, now you be like that when it comes to your service for the Lord. You just can't do enough. And you see, the reason that Paul says you need to be always abounding, the, the reason you want to be extravagant and lavish in your labors for Christ is because that's the nature of the way God has treated you. That's the kind of blessing that God has poured out upon you. He has been lavish and extravagant in the way He has blessed and treated you. John 10.10, 10, Jesus says, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. When you reflect upon your life as a Christian, that's an accurate assessment. You have thus far enjoyed an abundant life. Start to count your blessings and you'll realize this is an abundant life. Count the, the physical and material blessings, count the, the spiritual blessings, and you realize it's an abundant life beyond any kind of description I can give to it. That's the kind of life Christ came to give to you. That's the kind of life you're enjoying. No wonder your service, then, is going to be lavish. Romans 5.20, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. We provided the abundance of sin. But God has provided abundant grace. We deserve judgment. We've received abundant grace and blessing. Ephesians 3.20, God does exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think. We pray, and He answers in ways we could never have imagined. We work, and He blesses in ways we would never have dreamed. Because God does exceeding abundantly above all we could ask or think. 2 Corinthians 3.9, the glory of the new covenant is abundantly greater than the, that of the old. So you are far more blessed than the saints of the Old Testament about, you, about whom you read all the time. And you read about these great men and women of the faith. 
And what blessings they had. And you think, oh, a man after God's own heart. What a blessing to be such a saint. What a marvel to be observers of the kinds of miracles that Elijah and Elisha saw. What a marvelous thing to be able to be a David and a Solomon. But the Bible says you enjoy greater blessings, abundantly greater blessings than those saints. That's the privilege of living now as a Christian. Romans 15, 13, hope abounds for the Christian. We live in a world where people have no hope. We live in a world where people sit in darkness tragically. They love the darkness and life is grim for them. There's a reason there are philosophies like nihilism and existentialism that say there's no point and no purpose and no joy in life at all. That's the world. You and I, we are people of hope. And abundant hope, Paul says. And given how God has lavished his goodness upon us so much in this world and infinitely more in the next world, Paul says, well, you better be lavish in your service for the Lord. Not stingy, not uh, grudgingly, but oh, you're going to be over the top trying to serve this Lord Christ. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And Paul was an example of this. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three, In labors more abundant. Now when you read that in 2 Corinthians 11, you read about not just his labors, but his suffering. That is a catalog of suffering. You read from verse... 22 down to verse 33. I, you know, I, I suffered this, I suffered that. They threw stones at me. I was, I was beaten. I was so on and so forth. In labors more abundant, says Paul. Why is he abundant in his labors? Well, because God is abundant in his grace. There are other examples in the Bible. Romans 16, verse 4. Paul is talking about all the people he wants them to greet in Rome. He says, greet Mary, who worked hard for you. They're abundant in their labors. Greet the beloved Persis. Who's Persis? Well, nobody knows who Persis is except Paul and those to whom he wrote. We don't know who Persis was, but we know this. Greet Persis, who worked hard in the Lord. Wow, there's all kinds of Christians who work hard in the Lord. Why is that? Well, because they've been blessed beyond their wildest imaginations in Christ. It's no wonder then that Henry Martin, famous missionary, said that uh, he wanted to burn out for the Lord. David Brainerd, who died in 1747, lived only 30 years. But he lived so brightly so passionately, so fervently. And he served the Lord with such passion. People still talk about him today. People still write about him today. People still find him to be an example of righteous service and passionate labor. Still today, after 30 years of living. What about Epaphroditus? He's an example of this kind of thing. Philippians 2, Paul says that Epaphroditus, well, he risked his life for me. <laughs> I've never risked my life for anybody. Epaphroditus, he, he risked his life for Paul. 
That's extravagant service. The most extravagant is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Hebrews says that uh, it quotes the Old Testament and puts these words into the mouth of Jesus. And Jesus says, as he enters into the world, he says, I've come to do your will, O God. You can take this, you can take that phrase, you can put it as a banner over his whole life. From, from the carpenter's shop to the cross, I've come to do your will. I've come to serve you. I've come to live for your glory. I've come to die for their good. I've come to live and die extravagantly. Extravagant grace characterizes him. He's the model. Follow in his footsteps. John Calvin, uh, John Calvin has a crest, had a crest. It's a, it's a heart, or a drawing of a heart, inflamed, being held out, as it were, to God. And underneath in Latin it says, promptly and sincerely. I ah, says, well, that's the kind of life I want to live. I give myself as a sacrifice, Romans 12, 1. I give myself heart and soul, body and soul. I give myself to God as a sacrifice and I give myself promptly and I give myself sincerely to the service of my God. Extravagant. I know a young man. He's in grade 12. He is at a Christian school where my one of my grandsons attends. And this, this grade 12 boy, he's initiated a Bible study. When did they hold it? Well, they hold it on a Thursday during lunch. You live for lunch if you're a student. You live for that moment when the bell goes and it's lunch. But he says, oh, what we want to do is to have a Bible study. Why is that, I asked him. Oh, he says, I want to be a blessing to fellow students. I want to be an encouragement to those who are Christians. I want to be useful to the saving of souls of those who are not. Why are you having a Bible study at, at lunch hour at school? Well, because I want to honor Christ and be useful in the kingdom. I want to serve. Well, that's what we're talking about, you see. That's this. That's always abound. That's an enthusiastic worker for Christ. That's Fanny Crosby wrote 8,000 hymns. I maybe have four poems that I hide away from the prying eyes of anyone who might critique them. She wrote 8,000 hymns that she could publish. How fabulous is that? And then when, when they buried her, her family wrote on just a little tombstone, Aunt Fanny, she has done what she could. Fanny J. Crosby. <laughs> Wow, they want to put that on your tombstone. He's done what he could. She did all she could. That's wonderful. Do all you can. You and I, we are, we are called to be enthusiastic, passionate, eager in our service for Christ. Called to do all we can for the Lord Jesus and for his church. Not called to do what we can't. We're not called to do what we can't. There are things that you'd like to do, but you can't do. Maybe things you used to be able to do, but you can no longer do. You're not called to do what you can no longer do. You're called to do what you can do. 
and so do all you can. Bring all holy and loving influences and all sorts of, to bear on all sorts of men, if by all means sinners may be one to accept grace and saints may be animated on their way to glory. Let's serve in that way in our homes and in our church and in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods and all relationships we have. Let's heed this earnest call. Now let's move very quickly to an encouraging word. Two words Paul uses here. One is work and one is labor. And as I said earlier, the word labor speaks about work that just makes you weary. And some work, it might energize you, but some work just drives you into the dirt. And it just exhausts you. And I remind you of some of the reasons. The, The work of the Lord may wear you down because it might be thankless, it might be joyless, and it might be fruitless. And so I wanted to... I wanted to preach on this text today because I wanted to encourage you in the work and the work that God's given us to do. And I'm, I'm saying to you, you know, be an enthusiastic worker. And that's not to say you haven't been. This isn't, you know, I'm not trying to smack you about the head with the Bible and say, well, I need to get to work. No, no. I think you, you guys have been fabulous. I, I'm, I'm, I've been inspired personally by the way you work. And all I'm saying is, oh, keep going. That's great. Keep up the good work. And I want to say, keep up the good work and don't be discouraged. And I'm not saying that you've been discouraged. In fact, it seems to me we've had tremendous encouragements. And I think you've seen yourself with your own eyes, encouragements, and I think you've taken uh, encouragement from the things the Lord has done and has been doing. And, And I think that as we've worked together, I think we've done so in a spirit that's been very positive and very... Uh, very encouraging. So all I'm saying is, and the reason I wanted to speak, let's keep going. Let's keep up the good work. And look, this is not to praise us. This is whatever good is done is by the grace of God and for the glory of God. I'm just saying, let's keep up the good work. We've got a year before us. We've got, got strength and stamina and resources and Provisions from God. Okay, let's keep going. Let's keep working. Well, the encouragements that God sets before us and Paul sets before us here in this text is, he says, well, be encouraged first because this work is the work of the Lord. What we're doing is the work of the Lord. This This hasn't been our idea. I didn't plan this. I don't know about you, but I didn't plan this. God set this before us. It's the work of the Lord. And so you want to do the work as just that. It's the work of the Lord. It's His work, and you're doing it for Him, and it's doing it at His behest. You're not doing it for yourself. We're not doing this for our own glory. You don't do this so that you can be thanked. You don't do this so that people will be impressed with you. You don't do this the way the guys work out at the gym. You know how you, you work and, and you see these guys and they're just, you know, got the, they're doing this, you know, and they're doing this, and there's the mirror over there. Just giving the whole up and down. What do the, what do the pecs look like? Are these pecs here? Are these pecs? No? Where are the pecs? Right here? Okay, so they're like this. What are the pecs, right? Yeah, 
good thing I'm in theology and not physiology. But so, but you know, and I think I don't want to, honestly, I, I, I pray when I see that because I think, God help me. Not to, God help me not to preach like that. You can preach like that. You can preach and you just can't wait to get to the door so someone says, oh, that was pretty good, you know. Well, God strike me dead rather than that happen. You know. And don't do your work for that reason, no. You do it for the Lord. Matthew 6, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So your work's for the Lord. And when it's for the Lord, the Lord gives you the strength you need. The Lord's work will never lack the Lord's supplies, somebody said years ago. And that's certainly true. Paul, uh, rather Peter, in, in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 11, has a very wonderful, encouraging thing to say in terms of the service that we render to God. And he says, um, whoever speaks, speak as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves with the strength that God supplies in order that everything, in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So when you serve, as we serve as a church, we do so with the strength that God supplies. All kinds of labors, all kinds of things that you do, and you do it in such a way as to lean on the strength of God. And so Paul reminds us several times that the strength that God supplies is resurrection strength. It's resurrection power. The kind of power that's at work in you is the kind of power that raised Jesus from the dead. And that resurrection omnipotent power is at work in you, equipping you to, well, frankly, to work in the nursery. It's equipping you to, to do that techie stuff there, which I... You know, you thank the Lord, I'm not doing that stuff because so, but the Lord gives them the strength to do that. The Lord gives strength to set up chairs. The Lord gives strength uh, to go out and, and send invitations. The Lord gives strength to design invitations and bookmarks and all of, all of that's done, folks, not in our strength. It's the strength God gives you to do the work that you do. And that's why the glory ultimately then goes to him. So, look, you know, we can be encouraged because the work is the Lord's. And the glory then goes to him and the results will come from him, which takes us to the next, next encouragement. The, the work is the Lord's. And secondly, the work is not in vain. The work we do as we serve the Lord and do it for his glory and do it by his strength, will not be in vain, cannot be in vain. It feels in vain a lot of the time. You may have heard of a woman named Mary Moffat. She married a missionary in South Africa. Fabulous story. Look up Mary Moffat. Google her today. Um, just an encouraging story. But she said this. She said, could we but see the smallest fruit we would rejoice in the midst of the privation and toils which we bear. But as it is, our hands do often hang down. If only we could see a little bit of fruit, we'd be energized. But the fact of the matter is, we see nothing. Some years ago, 
Anna Pickert came back from the Middle East and said exactly the same thing to us. She says, I'm not asking for a lot of fruit. I'm just asking for just a little bit. But, you know, sometimes it's just tough. But the fact of the matter is there is fruit. When we think there isn't fruit, we're wrong. There is fruit. Isaiah 49, verse 4. I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Sometimes you feel like that. But Paul says in Galatians 6, 9, there's a text to memorize so that you don't feel destroyed in Christian service. Galatians 6, 9, let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up hope. It may seem to you that there's no fruit, but there is. Some fruit you see in this life. You do. Some fruit you see. There are some children here who are saved. What's that? Well, that's fruit for your labor. And not just the parents, because lots of other people here are praying for kids. So if some of them are saved, that's fruit for your labor. It's fruit, folks, for your labor. Some Christians here are being edified. They're being built up. They're being strengthened. They're growing in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. What is that? That's fruit for your labor. You've worked hard so that this could be a church. Remember when we started? We said, this is not going to be a hospital. You know, this is not going to be a place we're going to sit around and say, oh, those Christians, you know. No, we said, well, this has got to be a a, a church worthy of the New Testament where we do New Testament stuff. Well, what happens in the New Testament? The Christians are being built up. Christians are being built up. Why is that? Well, because you worked. This is fruit for your labors. Because some of you sat in the nursery and you looked after kids so that a mom or a dad could sit in the service and be built up. you're, You're serving, you see. And this is fruit for your labors. Some people can watch this stuff on online and be edified. Well, it's a fruit for your labor, you two guys back there. It's a fruit for your labor. Sometimes it drives you nuts. I know that because I see it on your face. What is wrong with that stupid mic? Right? Yeah. Okay. But there are people being edified because people work. It's fruit for your labor. So there's some fruit that you're going to see in this world. And you need to open your eyes to look at it. That's, that's tremendously encouraging when you see fruit. The other thing is that some fruit you'll see in the next world. And I would dare to say that most of the fruit is going to be saved for the next world. Because notice Paul says, in due time you shall reap a harvest. Due time. Due time is almost always not today. Almost always. They have pastors, they talk about about Mondays, they say, never write your letter of resignation on a Monday. Because you know you pour your life out, and then on Monday, it's like, what happened? Pfft, nothing. Get out my resignation letter 2.0. Right, get it. Well, I said, that's ridiculous. Because one of the Puritans, I forget who it was now, but he said, you can't sow and reap on the same day. 
Of course. So in due time, when's due time? Well, probably at the end. For most of this, at the end. It's going to be something like this, you see. William Grimshaw, read his biography, or a biography written by Faith Cook. Just, oh, fabulous. So his son was converted after William Grimshaw's death. And his son says to the person who led him to Christ, his son says, oh, he says, what will my father say when he sees me in glory. But the point is, he saw the fruit in glory. And most of the fruit for your labor, and I'm not talking now about William Grimshaw, George Whitfield, I'm talking about all of us. Because you have all kinds of work for the Lord. And most of the fruit of your labor you will learn about in glory. Listen to, um, I think this is Ryle. Let it never be forgotten that the time of success is a time of danger to the Christian soul. The very hearts that are depressed when all things seem against them are often unduly exalted in the day of prosperity. Few men are like Samson who can kill a lion without telling others about it. Most of Christ's laborers have as much success as their souls can bear. Probably if you saw all the success of your faithful labors, you'd have such a big head you couldn't get out the door. So, you know, the Lord does that for us. He keeps, it, he keeps it to himself. He shows us at the end when we're perfect and we can handle it and realize that we did nothing apart from Christ and all the fruit is his. We were instruments. But the point is, you'll find out one day how the Lord has used you. Some of the fruit we see now most of it we see then. So it's not in vain, you know. And the other thing to remember is it's not in vain because this is just the beginning. You think, oh, you look back in your life, you say, oh, at least I do at my age now. I look back, I say, well, you know, what have I done? What have I done? But then you realize it's just beginning. Like this isn't it. It's like C.S. Lewis at the end of the Narnia series, he says, now, he says, when you, when you get to glory, now the introduction of the book is over. Now you really start the story. Now you're on page one, chapter one. Well, that's what the glory is like. That's what our service is like. We serve here. Thank God. What a privilege. But when we get there, now, now it starts. And as I think it's Watts who wrote this, then I shall see and hear and know all I desired or wished below and every power finds sweet employ in that eternal world of joy. So you serve the Lord now, but one day you'll serve him absolutely spot on perfectly. And every power you have in your glorified state will find sweet employment in the cause of Christ and the work of God, time without end. And you'll be able to serve him perfectly for his glory, with perfect strength that he provides for the honor of the triune God, and you'll do that forever and do it happily, more happily than you can possibly imagine today. So, yeah, you know, it's just begun. There are joys and delights in serving here and now with all of the troubles, with all of the tears. It's still delightful. Thank <laughs> you.
just beginning. Last thing. Maybe you're not a Christian, you see. And you've been waiting for this to end because you're fed up with it. But I'm telling you this. Or I'm asking you this. What are you doing with your life? Whether you're young or whether you're old, like what are you doing with your life? How sad, how sad. See guys, it's okay. It's all right. But seriously now, how sad is it if your life is being lived for yourself and for the devil? Here you are. You're made for God. Hmm? You've been made, you've been created to know God and to live before God. And you're living your life for yourself. You're living your life under the control of the devil. How degrading. How grievous, how sad, how pointless. And then judgment. And so... You know, everything you've heard about thus far, about how wonderful it is to know the Lord and to serve the Lord, that could be you. It could be you. You need to turn from your sin. You need to trust the Lord Jesus Christ so that you might be saved. And then you're automatically enlisted in the greatest service you could ever be involved in, in the service of the King. Christian. Serving Christ for time and eternity. How marvelous that would be if today that becomes true of you. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege of knowing Christ. Thank you for the privilege of being blood-bought children of God and servants of the Lord. As your people, we pray that you'll help us in the year that lies before us to be steadfast and immovable and always abounding in the work of our Lord, knowing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. So bless us to that end. For the glory of our Lord Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. We're going to celebrate the table in a moment, so if you don't have one of these things... Be sure to get it during the hymn. And, um, you know, this is for those who know and love the Lord Christ. And if you do, we welcome you to partake. And if you do not, we welcome you to watch. And understand, as we celebrate the table, that all we've talked about is vitally and intimately connected. Those who've been saved by grace through faith by the blood of Christ, they give themselves wholeheartedly. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul my life, my all. But first.